The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. This week on the podcast, it's two stories about the origin of a pastry in Porto, Portugal. There are two fairy tales about it. So I'm going to sell you both and you can buy which one you want because (laughs) that's what I did as well. Good. You decide which story you like better, plus a wine museum in Porto. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Hey, welcome to the winemakers. This is Brian Casey with my friend Bart Hansen. We have John Myers possibly joining us, and uh, oh yeah, he's popping in right now. What do you know? And Sam Katuri on the way. And today we got uh, Mike Drash from Stonegate Winery in Virginia. So, Bart, I'm going to let you take it away and and how we hooked up with Mike and how you guys have known each other uh, from the past. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, Mike, good to see you. Yeah, good to see you, Bart. I mean, you know, this is about the only way this was going to happen is um, through uh, Zoom because I can't think, we don't have a budget to go to Virginia to taste wine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You should have thought ahead though and had you say, well, I I talked to you about it, about, you know, getting some wine, but I want to wait till I taste your wines, not your your predecessor. Um, So Mike and I met, and, and, and refresh my memory if I'm wrong here, Mike, Mike, I believe it was when you were working at Deloach, yep. um, and it was the Sonoma County Wine Technical Group. I was totally and, thinking about um, that today, yeah. Yeah, yep, it was uh, every, like the third Thursday of every uh, month, and you'd get together with a bunch of other people that work in the winery, cellar, lab, whatever, bring a bottle of wine to share, and then there was yep. some sort of speaker that would talk about stuff. Sometimes it was a supplier, which were always the worst the best ones were when it was actually winemakers sharing information and stuff. And, and I think uh, Mike and I probably bonded over the wine table, um, just yeah. sitting around yeah. tasting things. Um, and, and so that was the other thing. It was, it was a way to taste a bunch of other wines and, and whatnot. Um, and Bart, where, were, there, where were you working, Bart, when this was going down? I was at Kenwood. Kenwood. Yeah, okay. right. and so this is a while ago. 1993, yeah. by the way. Okay, wow. so 93. So, yeah. so yeah, so I'd been at I'd been at Kenwood for a while. Um, I'd been I didn't go to those things the first few years because I wasn't cool enough to be invited. Um, yeah. But um, so I, I was probably tell, you know telling Mike all about it, like you know all these you know great seminars that I listened to that was just a bunch of bullshit and just reaching for the bottle of wine that was in front of him. Yeah, I think um, the coolest the coolest one was it wasn't uh it was like the winemaker from Dom Perignon that came and opened up like a three liter that had been entourage aging for like twenty four years or something like that. <laughs> it was just freaking cool. Yeah. <laughs> um I remember Richard Arrowwood came to one uh, back then and um, you know, the first time I'd ever heard anyone talk about, uh, you know, not adding yeast and not filtering wines and, and although Richard always, well, early on, later Richard went to unfiltered, but, um, uh, he said the only way you could have a, uh, true 
fermentation where the yeast came in from the vineyards was to have a brand new building with all new equipment and nobody had ever walked inside another winery, you know, as far as yeast. Um, uh, and I, I just, that always stuck with me. But then, Mike, you went on to Jay, I believe. Yep. And, um, and, and I'll let you talk about it a little bit. Like, and, and you didn't grow up in Sonoma County, so talk about that a little bit also. Nope. Yeah, I uh, grew up in mainly in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, although I went to, I was born in Alabama and went to high school down in Mobile uh, for a couple of years. But uh, graduated Rhodes College in Memphis with a degree in anthropology and sociology with a minor in theater and media. Woo! <laughs> My parents were so proud. Um, but uh, it's kind of a crazy story. I moved to Key West in 1992 just to kind of have fun or whatever. And I was bartending and waiting tables down on Duval Street and the pier house and I my uh general manager at the time was this British alcoholic and uh at that time uh we had a ton of German uh I think we're probably past the uh the uh, uh probably won't get arrested telling the story let's put it that way it's been a while but <laughs> we had the Germans and they would never tip us because that's just what they wouldn't do and I guess they didn't never read a book like how you should tip in America so if it was a big enough party, the general manager would just put like two or three nice bottles of wine on their tab and they wouldn't even notice. And then we'd drink them <laughs> afterwards or during the shift or whatever. Yeah, awesome. it, was, it was like, so yeah, uh, the guy that said, if you never stop drinking, you, you want your liver will be fine kind of guy. But anyway, so I got to drink it. I, I kind of got the wine bug down there and I uh, put in my notice to leave and I thought I'd go back to Vanderbilt and get a master's and chemistry I had no idea how to make wine even how to get into it and lo and behold they hired a girl to take my spot who had just come back from a harvest in 1992 at Deloach Vineyards she had worked in the cellar talking about crazy fate and, and at that like, time sorry but at that time Deloach was actually owned by Cecil um, Cecil yep. um, who was a retired fireman or maybe still yep. a current fireman um, yep. Yeah, it's very small, very, uh, you know, uh, uh, quality oriented, specializing yep. in Russian River Valley and maybe some dry creek fruit. Is that right? Uh, no, I think it was, it was all Russian River, so, as I remember. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think we own just about everything. But yeah, so I called up. So she gave me the number for Randy Ullum, who was the winemaker at the time, and then went on to, you know, he's like the head head guy for Kendall Jackson worldwide. And uh, so this is like in March of 93. They said, well, come on out during like August or September and I'll give you a job for harvest and, you know, see how it goes. And so I packed up my stuff, drove to Nashville and was there for about a week. And I was like, why do I want to unpack and move here for four months and then move again? So I literally just kept on driving and it was about 10 to 14 days after I had uh, called him from Key West. I knocked on his door and then I like an $80 double breasted suit I had bought at the mall the day before. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, of course, it's just so funny. There was no cell phones back then. So I must use the landline, I assume, to call him. But uh, so I showed up and he was just blown away. I'd driven cross country and he goes, lose the suit and uh, start on Monday at seven bucks an hour. So uh, yeah, I just worked in the cellar and just kind of worked my way up and thought about going back and getting a master's degree at Fresno State or Davis. Um, but just was having too much fun making wine and learning and driving tractors and doing all this stuff, but I literally clean the press today. <laughs> That's basically the same thing I'm doing 28 years later. But um, yeah, from there I went on to uh, Jordan Sparkling Wine 
uh, and worked. That was when Jay was still made at Jordan. So uh, it was cool. Rob Davis, uh, still a good friend of mine. Uh, he was, I worked for Oded Shaked, uh, who uh, tremendous winemaker and taught me a lot. And then, uh, and then in '98, I got hired as assistant winemaker at Farniente, and uh, was there for five years. And that was an absolutely awesome experience because the focus was just on two wines plus Dolce. Yeah, and we would regularly taste uh, about every two weeks wines from all over the world. And sometimes we'd bring those winemakers in from Petrus or whatever. And uh, here I was like 28 years old, 29 years old, and I'm drinking Screaming Eagle and Harlan and, and uh, getting paid to do it. And, and it was, it was an awesome experience because it really showed, uh, you know, Gil Nuku unfortunately passed away way too young in 2003. Uh, he said, well, he said back then, it'd be, make it look like the president could show up any day, and maybe maybe not the president now, but maybe the, <laughs> maybe the pope or something. I don't know. But uh, so we uh, we kept the place spotless and really really focused on drilling down, uh, making the best wine possible. So uh, well, yeah. and Farniente was a, a winery that those wines did get served in the White House. Yeah, um, right. In, yep. in, in different, I won't say better times, I'll say in different times. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, that place was amazing, or is amazing. Yep. And, and, and the car collection was all there on... on yeah. He, uh, yeah, he got, I got the keys of the Ferrari occasionally and uh, his Rolls Royce and Bentleys and stuff. And uh, he was always saying, hey, the car's insured. There's only one of you. You know, don't, don't go crash. You know, if you crash, <laughs> hey, because I've, I've crashed cars before. Of course, he never gave me the keys to the $2 million Ferrari, but uh, I had to drive a couple of $200,000 or $300,000 cars. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, and then, then uh, so I wanted to become a head winemaker, so, uh, so I got hired at Luna. Then you know what, can, can, can we pause just for a second? So, so what year was that? At, let's talk about Farniente a little bit. Yep. Um, what was going on at Farniente, and what years was that? Uh, 1998 to 2003. Okay, so and that was um, like it was a crazy time when prices were went from like fifty dollars a bottle in '98 to when I left in 2003. I think about a hundred. It was just this crazy escalation of pricing in Napa. So that would have been during the uh, during the uh, cult winery surge, right? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And and yeah. you guys were more old school Napa Valley cab at the time, yep. right? Yep. Um, probably kind of trying to be part of the cult cab, you know, I mean, although you were part of the cult cab culture for sure, but you yeah. weren't one of the new ones. You were one of the established ones. Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. What was it like working there then? I mean, you guys, you guys were kind of top of the heap and um, I mean, was that the feeling? And um, yeah, it was definitely you know, um, you know, because Harlan was literally in our back. And to drive to Harlan, you had to drive through Farniente's property, uh, right. part of, part of the way. Um, uh, yeah, it was interesting because Harlan, right in our backyard, suddenly was getting all these uh, crazy. Sorry, I got two dogs in my office. Okay. <laughs> uh, what kind of dogs? Sorry. Do you have? 
What kind uh, of I got my chocolate lab, and then my assistant winemaker has a boxer in there trying to see who could hump each other more. So it's a little. <laughs> it's a little That's what the, what is a podcast for, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, a little little sex on the side. Mike, um, Mike, we're we're very very uh, informal here, as you, okay. you, as you I figured. See. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, I can't remember. I think it was around two thousand or two thousand one where it went from. Oakville was not on the label, or right? it was just Napa Valley, and that, and then Oakville because you had Screaming Eagle, Harlan, uh, Futo, which was not Futo at the time, but that that property was basically in our backyard too. Uh, went from, uh, I mean, most of the vineyards that Farniente had, they owned. There were some they bought fruit from, but they, went, it was a pretty good commitment because I think we were doing twenty or twenty five thousand cases of cab, and then to go to this, that Oakville label, of course it's at Napa Valley as well, but for the first time, I want to say it's about 2000, 2001 that Oakville got added to the label where hundred percent of the, the, uh, the grapes for the Cabernet came from Oakville. And that was really a testament to, you know, kind of keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak, keeping up with the Harlands, you know, they were, you yeah. know, they were literally in our backyard for twice cool. the price, three times the price. Yeah. So then after that, that was when you made your move. Um, how did how did it come about the job, um, the next position? Um, you know, I got divorced at that time, and I literally looked from Mendocino to back to Sonoma Coast, Russian River, and I just kind of kept a wide open mind. And Abe Scherner, so John Kongsgard was kind of the the big, obviously the big guy, the big name that was put Luna on the map in the late mid to late nineties and early two thousands. And was he the head winemaker or was he a consultant? He was, he was like 2003 was kind of his last year as a consultant and he may not have been paid that year, but he did come around. So Abe Scherner, who now of course has Scolium project and is like the guy for natural wine and is a super, super, it, it was a great, so he hired me as assistant winemaker in 2003 and he said, you know, I'm working on this, my own project called Scullion Project. If the thing goes well, I'm going to leave here and you'll be winemaker next year. So I was like, okay. So and it, it was, a, it was the, the great thing coming from Farniente. Farniente and Luna and Abe Scherner couldn't be more opposite in philosophy of winemaking. I mean, it was 100% native fermentations, no fining or filtering on the reds, funkier the better a little bit to some degree. And an interesting thing, when I interviewed Abe, put five bottles of wine in a brown bag in front of me and goes, I want you to try these wines and we'll talk about them, which I thought, well, that's really refreshing. <laughs> Instead of what's your resume, you know, you know, what's your, you know, blah, 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 all that stuff that I'm like, it was it's such a refreshing thing. And it really was, it, it was, it was a cool experience because, and I think I got five for five. I, I mean, I, I mean, I didn't nail every winery, but it was a, it was fun, and we, it, 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 and that's why for me, as my winemaking style has evolved, is taking those classic winemaking details at Fardiente and creating this more natural style. If I can, you know, it's kind of hard to explain, but I, uh, when I moved to Minnesota, I didn't think I could do native wines at all because I didn't know what the heck could live in 30 below zero weather and uh <laughs> but by the end i was doing three or four wines natural and i think it's kind of like richard arrowwood you said there bart i mean to me you know to me it's more important to have nutrients than it is yeast really i mean um because at luna and then when i did my Tallulah wines my own wine i never added yeast for like 15 years 14 years and uh things from in just like in 
a normal fermentation as long as I fed it, you know, DAP and superfood or whatever. Um, so, you know, that being said, we're, this year I'm not doing any native fermentations here. I'm just trying to get get my head wrapped around what happens in Virginia. Uh, Mike, who who owned Luna? It was mainly Mike Moon, you know, from the Behringer. Uh, Mike Moon. Uh, there were about 30 investors, but Mike Moon was the face. And then uh, George Vare as well, um, who passed away a few years ago. Um, so it was being with Mike Moon was the guy to kind of put together the purchase of Behringer back in the early, late 90s, early 2000s. And then for like $150 million. these numbers could be off a little bit. But then like five years later, he sold it for $1.2 billion type deal. Jesus. Yeah. And so I just remember going in there. I, I could swear I went in there and there was pictures of like Arnold Palmer. On the yeah, Arnold Palmer was an investor, and uh, it actually oh, was okay. really cool for me. Yeah, so he, we did this Arnold Palmer wine, which is basically a negociant type stuff, and it was cool for me because I got to go down to the desert, and hang out with him, and play one hole of golf with him. Um, type <laughs> deal. He was super super nice guy. So. And and they, I remember what I always bought there was Sangiovese. It was freaking yeah. killer. Yeah, we had this. I mean, right, I mean, literally like one parcel south of Screaming Eagle on the trail, we had Sangiovese, right, in the middle of Oakville. And, you know, not surprising, it made killer Sangiovese. I mean, you know, yeah. it, uh, yeah, it was, uh, and actually I've got a, I'll show it here, but I pulled a couple samples, not letting anybody can try them, Sevillon Blanc and then Nebbiola. We have uh, four acres of Nebbiola plant here on the property, and this is our, I think it was our first year to really get a crop. And literally this morning, it finished fermentation a couple of days ago. And this morning it was like bright pink. And I just pulled a sample a few minutes ago. And now it's like darkish red. <laughs> Sam, so, Sam, uh, did you hear that right when you came in, what he said he was talking about when he worked at Luna? No. Brought, yeah. And, and so Mike was, his last job in California was at Luna. And he was working. Um, oh, Brian said when he went to Luna, he'd get the Sangiovese. Well, because I could afford it too. I remember right, it was yeah, cool. right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the Savannah and the and San Gervasi was was one parcel over from Screaming Eagle, you said? And and it's the like, San Gervasi uh, block, yeah. It was uh yeah. just just south of there. Who 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 farmed San Gervasi, you know, that right. close to Screaming Eagle. Yeah, but then right. the other thing you guys did at Luna, it was it was with a Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio? Pinot Grigio, but it was made more in a Pinot Gris style. Yeah. Um, and um, it was barrel fermented and barrel aged. I mean, it's one of these crazy things. Let's put, the, let's put a business model together. Let's make Sangiovese and Pinot Grigio in the Napa Valley. Uh, I'm with it. <laughs> uphill battle. But um, but yeah, and then we yeah we did uh, Pinot Gris. Gris it was Pinot Grigio, but it was Pinot Gris style, really. Uh, we did uh, – George Bear was a big fan of Ribola, Giala, and Tokai from Italy and – Brought back, smuggled back in some vines from uh, Radicon up, up in that Slovenia area and planted, uh, it was like five acres of Ribola Giala in Tokai. And that was really cool to work with. I mean, oh, so that's who doing. planted those grapes. Yep. I was wondering yep. how they, because I think I've had the Arby Garby wines and then I've yep. had some uh, Mathiasin. Um, yeah, Steve was our vineyard manager uh, when I started at Luna in 2003. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I think all of that is either, I, I don't, I don't know if all of it comes from there. Cause some people could, could have taken plantings or cuttings of plants somewhere else. I'm not sure. But for the most part, if it's Rubola, uh, it'll, it'll 
come from that block over on uh, West Dry Creek Road, Dry Creek Road going up uh, the west side of the Napa Valley. Right. Very but, um, interesting. Very interesting wine. That's one of the ones that I I held on to at the hotel that I wouldn't sell was the both Matthiasin and the Arby Garby Rebola Giala. I remember doing the tasting of the Arby Garby wines when I was the buyer at Estate, and it was it's okay. it was this Italian cup Estate. It was this Italian couple, and I think the wife normally did the tastings because his English was was really bad. But she, for some reason, couldn't show up that day, so he came, and it was this whole tasting where we were trying to understand, and I couldn't understand what the label was. I thought it meant some, something to do with a chicken, um, but I know I really liked the wine, and, and I love the story. You know, the, you could tell that they were, you know, super cool, passionate people just being around them, um, so that's always one of those wines that I've followed, um, and, and it's cool to to talk about because most people don't know what Ribola Giala is. They might've had it from, from Italy, but they, they haven't yeah. had it from uh, California. Yeah. And the interesting thing he, cause George had his own label Vare V-A-R-E, his last name. And when he first, Ribola Giala wasn't recognized as a grape varietal like in the United States. So, uh, so Ribola Giala was actually a fanciful name. I don't know, the first couple of vintages <laughs> before they recognize it in the U S or whatever. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so how many years at Luna? I was there a little over six years. Uh, and then in 2009, so I have uh, just one daughter, uh, named Tallulah and she was born in 2006. So Tallulah Bankhead is a distant cousin of mine. Uh, anybody knows if you're over the age of 70, you would know her, but she was a, an actress, famous, infamous actress back in the thirties through the fifties and was kind of she swung both ways, did cocaine, flash people, said really inappropriate things. And, and, uh, so <laughs> she was my great, great aunt. Anyway. So, so when our daughter was, daughter born, after. Well, yeah, <laughs> sometimes I regret maybe how that's going to turn out, but, uh, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so in 2006, I, of course I Googled, like I thought maybe you know, one day I would do Tallulah wines or winery, but somebody else had already right. taken the name. Long story short, in 2009, I, I had the opportunity to buy the brand and about three or 4,000 cases worth of wine. Some of it was in barrels, some of it was bottled. So That's in 2009, right. what's that? Oh, I just, I'm just remembering that now. Yeah. yeah. And, right? who, and yep. who was it that had the Tallulah? It was someone. It was uh, someone Ben Davis. It was Ben Davis, but uh, John Raytech uh, bought, basically, I don't want to go into it, uh, yeah. but basically. John got the brand It's a little bit of a, uh, I don't think I could speak about it now, but, um, but basically John Raytech had the brand and I got a hold of him and we struck a deal and I bought the brand. I had two investors and, uh, one of these things you underestimate, you know, I got the brand and all this inventory pretty cheaply, but of course it was 2009 and I had freaking Syrah. <laughs> it was 2009 and it was Syrah. <laughs> uh, I tried to sell Syrah and Grenache. Uh, it's difficult enough, much less in a, a recession so uh you know we learned a lot uh made some great wines i mean it is i was fortunate i had all these single vineyard wines or vineyards that i was able to buy fruit from and i mean some of it uh was stuff that you know they were selling it to one winery for 18 or twenty thousand dollars a ton and i got it for six thousand dollars a ton because the vineyard manager was a friend of mine so um yeah so we uh but it you know we we kind of got the crap kicked out of us for four or five years and uh during that whole deal and 
realized that I love making wine, running, running my own businesses. I'd rather leave that to somebody else. So, uh, anyway, so in 2013, we had rented a house up on the Mendocino coast overlooking the Pacific ocean, this incredible week in the ocean. And, and my wife, Tracy is from Wisconsin and she was a director of, um, retail and winery, winery tasting room operations for Constellation. She managed, uh, like seven wineries, Madavi being the biggest one. And, and, and she had this great career. And I said, Hey, Tracy, what do you think if we moved to Wisconsin? And she's like, are you freaking crazy? <laughs> you know, cold it gets there and, da, 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 and I was, it was just these weird, you know, and I just turned 40 kind of, my dad had died a couple months ago suddenly. And, you know, it's one of those things in life where, yeah, it was just this crazy period. And so, uh, uh, we started looking, my wife could work anywhere. She's an air force Academy grad. She worked for, uh, many corporations. And so I was like, what the heck am I going to do? And, uh, lo and behold, we see an ad on winejobs.com for, you know, winemaker in Minnesota, <laughs> they, like everybody else, they make wine in Minnesota. Like how the hell do they do that? Mm-hmm. So, uh, but basically, yeah. So we, uh, I was running a winery and distillery about an hour Southwest of Minneapolis for, uh, six, six plus years. And, uh, most people don't know, but the University of Minnesota is one of the largest viticulture research universities in the United States, and they've developed about a dozen grape varietals that can survive uh, 20 and 30 below zero winters and ripen in a 110-day window from bud break to uh, picking. So, jeez, uh, hold on, hold on. I want to know what what those are. Yeah, so they are. The main promise one is Marquette. Okay. It's a red grape. It's a cross between Pinot Noir and Frontenac. Uh, Frontenac is like this, it's a Minnesota varietal that basically it can go to like 40 below and still survive type stuff. Um, so that was the cold hardiness of it. And then they crossed it with Pinot Noir. And so if you go to, it's in Chaska where the, uh, the, uh, where the apples and the vineyard research is, and you go there and they literally have 15,000 plants of which like five, they're five vines per, you know, whatever thing they're working on. Right. It's this crazy, crazy, um, beautiful thing they're doing there. And it's right in the middle of freaking, you know, Minneapolis basically. So, uh, so yeah, John and Jenny tool, husband and wife there. If you ever get out there, get a chance to meet them. Some of the coolest people you ever meet and they're pretty instrumental in, uh, in running that program. So, uh, so Marquette, it's kind of like a, uh, kind of like a Rhone varietal more. It's kind of like Grenache, Grenache meets Pinot Noir. Um, yeah, we've actually had one because Sam, you had one in your cellar because I think uh, from uh, from Wild, uh, from Wild Ark Wild Ark Farms, right? Yep. It, Did and, they also make Piquette of Marquette, or am I just adding too many things? No, there was they made a Piquette of Marquette. Yes, right. and then the Piquette was in a bottle. What's the Piquette? I think I still have it. I think I Corvined it. First person oh, ever Corvin a bottle of Marquette. <laughs> this this is going to be a new project for you, Mike. Yeah, Paquette is um, – well, go ahead, Brian. You're the Paquette yeah, expert Paquette in our group. Expert, no. <laughs> we'll have that frozen Viognier skins if you want to do it. It's, I, so it's you take the skins uh, and um, uh, after add, water, yeah. add water, um, get it down to it'll, – so it'll ferment at about 6 to 6% alcohol. Um, uh, and and it's, it's like it's the natural wine sparkler. It's – it's the uh, it's, it's, it's sparkling the tr- seltzer wine natural sparkling seltzer yeah different than pet net 
different than Pet Nat because it's only uh, five or six percent alcohol. Okay. It's supposed to be. It, it's it, as someone said to me. It's all these seltzers, sparkling seltzers that are uh, beer based. Well, mm-hmm. it all came from Paquette originally. That's something that's done in Europe. It's you know you're taking your waste and mm. and doing something else with it. Yeah, it's a good way to use your must, right? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You, this is something you yeah. can do. So wait a minute. I saw. So, but you you never. I never knew you as knowing anything about distilling. Where did that? How did that part uh, work into it? It. Um... I grew up in Tennessee, so I always loved bourbon. And so when they were interviewing me to move out to Minnesota, they said they're putting a still in. And I'd always wanted to learn how to, to distill. So, uh, so yeah, so it's basically trial by fire. I mean, it's – so we make brandy. I mean, brandy's kind of an easy extension. So we had this 500-liter copper still from Germany. Uh, I mean, it, it, it was – freaking amazing, beautiful piece of equipment. I mean, uh, unbelievable. the Germans, the way they do things, of course, are uh, incredibly high level of detail. And so brandy, the, the key thing, like when you're doing brandy, for instance, is you can't add sulfur to the, the wine or the must, right? And so because if you add, you know, when you distill, you're distilling everything, right? And so you add 50 parts sulfur, when you go to distill it, it can either crack your still or just or, or kill you or whatever. No so. way. I, okay. I didn't, I never no thought about that. Yeah. 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 So that's why it always cracks me up here. Like, Oh, I got a bad wine. Let's just distill it. Well, first of all, if it's bad going in, it's going to be bad coming out. I mean, that's garbage in garbage out. Ah, yeah, exactly. It's like, Oh, we'll distill it. Oh, it'll be fine. Oh, we'll just drink it. You're like, no, it, it tastes like crap going in. It's going to taste like crap coming out. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and so the, the, the trickiest part, because we did apple brandy as well, because apples are, you know, you know, are big in Minnesota and people like that. And But the bourbon and rye, rye is especially difficult. No one, you know, they'll, they'll tell you their mash bill, but no one tells you, like, you know, how many gallons of water you need to add per pound of grain so you're, you're – mash is you know not like concrete or the opposite of it's too it's too it's too uh liquid liquefied and so uh yeah it was uh it was the first couple of batches were uh i mean it was a, yeah, that was a major learning curve and then uh once you know broke a bunch of eggs making omelets early on and then finally just talking to people and reading and reading and it's i mean and it, the, the ph level on bourbon and stuff and rye especially rye is like rye is the worst one to start with because it is it's it's tolerance for ph is like five two to five two two anything like five one eight to five two two if you're any any different than that it'll just crap out and smell like a ferment a red fermentation that needs a a ton of DAP or superfood. It just gets stressed out really easily. Hmm. And, that, and that was actually the first thing we started with me and the owner and it smelled like shit. And I'm like, and everybody, and we were just, we were the, the, the winery and distillery were below the tasting room. And so we had some investors upstairs that are like, is it supposed to, is it always going to smell this crap terrible when you're distilling? I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think this is normal. Uh, but uh, and I was fortunate enough right before the pandemic hit, uh, I, I was always looking for things in like November, December, so I could a conference or something I could get out of Minnesota in the wintertime. And there was this world whiskey forum that started, 
like uh, five years ago in Japan, and I didn't really know it. I guess I just played dumb, and I asked, I sent the people a message, and it was it was pricey, but it wasn't that pricey considering what you got. But basically, it was kind of invitation only. <laughs> it was like the who's who of Scotland and Japan. I mean, wow. Satori's head distiller was there, and they were like. Yeah. They kind of, I think they just kind of felt sorry for me. Like, yeah, well, we're kind of sold out, but I mean, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, distilling in Minnesota. And like, well, yeah, sure. We can make room. And I get there and like everybody knew each other. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. And it was just, you know, so that was in talking and that, and that, uh, yeah, that was in February. And, and then I'd made it several more batches before I left. And it was just like freaking amazing. So I, I do miss that side of, of, uh, of, I, I, I did enjoy distilling once you figure out, once you pound your head against the wall 50 times and then the 51st time you figure out what works, it was, it was pretty cool. And what are you, so you said something about distilling apples. So you were doing, you were doing apple brandy as well? Yeah, we, uh, we would buy the apple juice from a, uh, a guy in, in Minnesota and we would bring it over and make it into wine. We'd make some of it into like wine for bottled wine. Uh, because people love sweet apple wine in that area. And then the other half we'd make into brandy, apple brandy. So if I remember correctly, like with distilling, you got to, I don't know if it's like uh, they do with grappa, you got to take out what's what's called the head and the tail and you just want yep. the heart, right? So you let it go yep. for a little while and then you take the heart out of it and then you let it go for a little while to get, because otherwise it it's really, um, I don't know what the word is for in, in um uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. So it's a double distillation. <laughs> My dog. Uh, yeah. So the first one, basically, let's say we'll take our rye and we we would distill with the grain in, and which is really messy, but it made a better better spirit. And so you would take. So it comes in at say eight percent alcohol. We distill. We bypass our column on the first run. They call the stripping run. And so you take your raw product. It out comes uh, clear liquor. Like it's called low wine, actually uh the first the first distillation so you get like 80 percent loss so you put 150 gallons in you're gonna get like 30 gallons back at about 30 to 40 percent alcohol and so then when what we do it take us like five passes to do one batch of bourbon or rye and then we take our low wines and put it back in and the boiling point of alcohol is 78.2 degrees celsius of course water is at 100 so so that's how the whole distillation works. It would go through the column, which helps purify it, uh, strip out of any impurities. And so the second run is where you get the heads and it's pretty fascinating. So it's, that's basically almost pure methanol. And so right, uh, right, it can smell like jet fuel. Uh, when we did rye, it smelled like dead fish. It was, it was pretty interesting, Whoa, the different wow. uh, aromas you get out of there. And the heads would make up like the first five percent or so, and so it'd come out about 170 proof. And we would just sit there, and so we would we'd pull a sample, and then we'd cut it with uh, RO water because at 170 proof, you don't get a lot of aromatics. And so we would cut it, taste it, and and then uh, yeah, so it, it was end of a 10-hour day of distillation. You you walked home a little little buzzed, but uh, and then what do you do with the with the byproduct? Like yeah, so yeah, so the heads, so and then the hearts are the main portion of the run. They make up 80% of the run, and then tails at the end, literally like the alcohol starts tailing off or dropping off, and it gets the the feeling of the spirit becomes more alkaline based, and it kind of smells 
it smells, depends on like a dish soap, kind of depends on the product you're making. But so we keep those aside. And then the cool thing is if you take heads and tails and redistill them, you get heads, hearts and tails again. So that's how we made our gin and a lot of small producers. Um, we would, we would take our botanicals. We drop in the top of the, the helmet of the still and we put our heads and tails and run them back through and capture that essence. And then, and then, that sounds like so much fun. That's like something we, you know, you know, and I Mad love the science. Totally. And I love the equipment. It, it's almost like, it's very like steampunk, you know, when, yep. when you're talking about the copper stuff, it looks so cool. It's like yeah. art pieces, it's like a piece of art. Yeah. And it, yeah. It, distillation is like baking. If you equate it to cooking, cause it's, it's a recipe you want to get it every time where they're, you can't like, oh, they're wine. We want the pH to be 365 this time versus 37 or whatever. You can't do that with distillation uh, because, you know, like I said about rye, things can go badly very quickly. So you really, you come up with a formula that works and you repeat, repeat, repeat. So, right. yeah. so what, was the, um, what was the biggest challenges of making wine and growing grapes in Minnesota? Obviously the weather um, was a challenge. But for the most part, it was lack of knowledge on the vineyard side of things for, and it wasn't our side. We had, we had a 15 acre vineyard and we had a tremendous, uh, vineyard manager, uh, Jameson Lindquist, who was actually just out here in Virginia for a couple weeks, helping me out here, but, um, lack of knowledge and you, you literally that we talk about vines how many vines they have 300 vines or whatever you know it's kind of like right. uh really small growers in the first couple of years it took uh I had to weed out a lot of bad apples but on the flip side is i was able to find several that were corn and soybean farmers in one case this guy john royson literally on the five mi five miles of the south dakota border he's a true farmer he's in his six he's a farmer his whole life and he had planted a vineyard in 2003 and uh, he had tremendous, tremendous, tremendous. The frustrating part was early on that I didn't have any growers that I really knew what they were doing. And, uh, but by the time I left, we, and, we, and, and I had gone, you know, in Minnesota just changed, but there was a, a rule, 51% rule, 51% of your fruit had to come from Minnesota. So there was some incentive for people to plant. And literally they would make, 15 to 20 times the amount they would on an acre of corn on an acre of grapes. Wow. It's wow. Just the, yeah. But they, it just wasn't scalable for people. Right. So some, but I did. So like my second year I went out and met some growers, corn, or farmers. And I said, Hey, what if you plant like five acres? We'll teach you how to do it. And I, you, you know, you, you run the, you run the math to them and they're like, Oh, and we, and we always paid, you know, 20% more uh, than most growers or most wineries and uh especially when i i mean i had less curry another farmer and man he was the most meticulous top five most meticulous farmer or grower i've ever worked with and he planted his vines in black earth that was made for more for corn but he put drain tiles in the whole vineyard wow. and like detail detail in his vineyard uh was unbelievable and we had a single vineyard wine we'd make when we could get enough fruit, the, you know, the weather there, one year you get five tons, the next year you get one ton because it's wow. just crazy cold there and all, you know, it just, it, it's very, it's variable. Um, so, but that was, it was really cool. 
Um, I was glad when I left that I had made a lot of a lot of friends there. People in the Midwest, man, they are they are hardworking people. I mean, they are they were, and I mean, I and yeah, the winters are brutal. I mean, we were there. I was there seven winters, and yeah, it, it's just one of these things. It was a cool environment. Uh, we literally lived out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, talk about where there was no road rate. It was just one of these things when you leave Northern California, you go there, and you're like. People are nice, and the thing is, they wave to you that they're nice because more than likely, they might know you or know somebody. It was kind of refreshing. You're just like, Tracy, my wife would give me a hard time because most Minnesotans, because six months out of the year, they're driving on ice, they drive pretty passively, not super fast, and just kind of wave people on. And and I got to the Tracy's like, you're in Minnesota. I'm like, yeah, just stop signing. They can go first. Who cares? Yeah, whatever. You go all the way. No, two more people. You go through. You know, whatever. It was just... It was kind of fun. So now I'm back in Northern Virginia where it's like, holy, it's a lot of people. So, Well, we never covered what were, we talked about Marquette, but what was the other four? Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. Right. So, so La Crescent is um, this kind of a, would be most similar to a Riesling. Um, it's very hyper aromatic. The problem is growing it like, like right before it is ready. And it doesn't ripen to maybe like 22 bricks, if that where Marquette actually will get to like 25, 26 bricks or more. Um, so La Crescent, right before you want to pick it, if you go out and sample, the berries would want to just fall off. So it was, huh. yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a tricky one uh, and didn't tolerate the cold as much. Um, but the interesting thing in Minnesota, it wasn't a shortage of sugars. It was these crazy high acids. So like we would pick uh Frontenac, for instance, is a red, is a, it's, there's Frontenac, which is red. There's Frontenac Gris, which is pink, and Frontenac Blanc, which of course is white. They're all in the same family. And you pick Frontenac Blanc at like 26 bricks with a TA of 12 or 10 or 12. It's just, yeah, it's kind of bizarre. So, uh, but Itasca is the newest one that. I've heard uh, of that one? Yeah. yeah, that one actually is going to be very good. And I made two vintages of wine off of it, and it's kind of Savion Blanc more, but more like. Uh, like the Loire area kind of uh, more mineral driven type stuff. Nice. Um, and that one, the acids are more normal. You, know, you get 24 bricks on it and the TA is like seven or something, you know? So, and, and I, we, we planted one, one, like 1. 1.2 acres of it back in, I think 2016 was the first year you could get the, the, the plantings, the plan. And so 2019, 2018 and 2019, we made some and was, it shows a lot of promise. So. And what would happen if you took some of those, those varietals and, and put them out here in California? Uh, It'd be yeah, it's, ripe in July 4th. Exactly. Probably. <laughs> There's someone up in uh, Washington that planted some Marquette. Um, I think he's in the kind of the, Tri-City area down Pasco area, I believe. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, it would probably ripen. <laughs> it would just explode. Its head would blow off because it was too nice of weather. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's some of those varieties fun. might need the cold to actually like shut them down. You know, I mean, it's exactly, it's good yeah. to have that in yeah. even in in sort of the more known you know vinifera varieties that you want cold weather to sort of send them in, send them into. Yeah. dormancy with these things they might you know they might never go dormant yeah, yeah that's right? a good point it right? never yeah. gets down below 35 yep right that's true yeah might get two that's crops a year two crops a year yeah double that's your yield 
right. I think it's a good idea. We could probably plant some out in Carner. You know, Car- there might be some places in Carneros that you could pull it off. Somewhere yeah. really cool, like you know, right on the coast, Fort Ross or something. Yeah, really yeah. heavy soils. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. Wouldn't that be Wouldn't that be weird to hear a winemaker say, "Yeah, you only get two chances a year." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, we'll get it in January. It'll be back in January. <laughs> yeah. So, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, I enjoyed Minnesota. It was, we had the house on the lake. We had a pontoon, you know, it was, uh, it was a good time. Well, so, and my and wife was from, my wife was from the area. So we got to see her family too. So it was nice. But, but what was the, what was the wine scene like though? Was it, I mean, were the locals coming and doing tastings and I mean, they yeah, were into we, it. Yeah, we it, we had a we were we were probably the largest winery, Chancaska Winery there in Minnesota. We were probably the largest winery in Minnesota, um, and we made like ten thousand cases of wine and maybe two or three thousand cases of spirits. Um, we and, and, and the and the cool thing there is that uh, it's almost we we had a restaurant in the winery, a wood fired pizza oven restaurant, and wow. and. Uh, we could stay, we could stay up until one in the morning if we wanted to. Uh, we, we were open till, uh, on Fridays and Saturdays, we close at 10 o'clock at night. So it was kind of cool that people would come and they would eat and they would drink. And it was kind of, I don't want to say it's like European, but people came and they ate and drank wine. They didn't just go and taste. And the the thing I loved about Minnesota as opposed to Napa, you know, 99% of the people that came to Luna or whatever, Farniente was closed to the public, say Luna were tourists, right? And they would come and they would leave and you can, I never got to know anybody. And in Minnesota, I knew so many customers, people by name and they would come in like, you know, these couple, they would come in on every Thursday and they had the Riesling and I, and I got to know a lot of people and, and that was cool because I was this freakish winemaker in an area that people just aren't used to winemakers, you know, whatever, or wine being made. So that was that was cool. I made a lot of I knew I knew a lot of people by name when they came in and they knew me and I got to know their families and they'd invite me over for dinner and Sounds like you could have ran for mayor. Uh, I did actually think about running for mayor. <laughs> 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 the hairdresser won though. The hairdresser won. So <laughs> Yeah, it was a town of Casota which is known for a winery uh, has a bit of a meth problem, and uh, there's a there's a place called Drive a Tank where you it's the only place in the world where you can go uh, and drive a tank uh, on this like hundred acre course, and if you pay enough money, you can crush a car and and Casota, uh, <laughs> Minnesota. It's an interesting spot. Six hundred people live there. And were you allowed to, could you serve people and let them taste through the um, spirits too? Um, yeah, so in, uh, yes, you could do spirits. And then we built a cocktail room on, uh, which was really cool before the pandemic hit. So, but in the state of Minnesota, you can only sell one 375 mil bottle per person per day. Wait, 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 wait. say that again? Yeah, out of the tasting room or the cocktail room, if you come in, you love the bourbon, and you're like, Mike, I want to buy a case of your bourbon. I said, sorry, I can only sell you a 375 mil bottle. Wow. Why is that? So it takes 24 uh, days to buy a case. Because distributors, the distributors had their stranglehold on one uh, house of re- a representative okay. who shot it down every year. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So you had to bottle everything into 375s? 
pretty much. I mean, we'd sell to we would sell to liquor stores and stuff like that. But I mean, right? Okay. Yeah, most of what we did was probably eighty percent of three seventy fives. And then but you could go make- into a liquor store and buy a case. Yeah, exactly. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Fucked up. <laughs> yeah. But, little- but wine, but wine people could come and buy a case of wine. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, and there's like eight, there are like 10 distilleries in the state of Minnesota. It's not like, it's not like, it was, it was a stupid rule. I mean, it was in, yeah, yeah. That was frustrating. I mean, it was just not a good for, it's not good for business. I mean, it's stupid. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and so, Dan, you, you said before the pandemic, so which means you've moved from, is that right? You've moved from Minnesota to Virginia, like just, just recently. Yeah, I moved uh, moved here uh, first week of July to Virginia. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I was looking for. We were just kind of looking because my wife. We were, you know, just Minnesota was the, the winters are just. You can say it's thirty two below zero, but until you live through that, and literally like six mm-hmm. months of the year is winter, like conservatively maybe seven. It gets it just it just wears on you, you know. It's just yeah. and so we were, we were looking from moving back to Napa or Sonoma, I looked at British Columbia. We both almost had jobs in British Columbia. Uh, she was gonna run this trillion dollar wineries being put in up there. And then we just, anyway, we just, we were looking around, taking our time to find the right fit. And we, our daughter who just started ninth grade, I wanted to be sensitive to, well, okay, we're gonna move now or we're gonna stay out here for four more years until she graduates high school. And so, uh, and so this the opportunity at, at Stone Tower came up uh, I was on wine jobs and I, Tracy, my wife saw it. And, uh, it's, it is a, it's like, it's my 28th harvest and it's like the perfect mix for me because I'm from the South originally from Tennessee, even though it's a wet, I was from Memphis, which is, we're probably closer to Canada than we are to Memphis from here. But, um, but it's a, it's a good mix. Um, the property, the ownership is, uh, there's one couple that owns it, Mike and Christy Huber, and their daughter, Lacey, and it is a property the family bought in 1975. It's 1,600 acres of pristine hillside, rolling hillsides. And Loudoun County, where we live, if you know it or not, it has the highest income per capita of any county in the United States. So you can imagine what this 1,600 acres would be worth, <laughs> worth now. Uh, and, so and what is that? Is that people commuting? Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is that DC it? DC commute, yeah. DC commute. People, so how honestly, far are you? From DC. Uh, we're like 40, 30, we're 25 minutes from Dallas airport, uh, about 45 okay. minutes to the white house. So, okay. um, and given and is that Charlotte, is that Charlottesville? Uh, no, Charlottesville is about two hours South of here. Okay. Yeah. Another pocket. So Northern Virginia, Loudoun County has 50 wineries in the County. Um, and, um, yeah. So, but the, the, the job here, it, Farniente was really their model and they, they know, Beth Nichol, who was uh, Gil's uh, widow, um, but um, it is—it's a pretty special spot. And you, the prop, you look, a, sorry, I was just saying, it looks like you have every single toy, winemaking toy you could yeah. imagine, uh, in there. Um, yeah, it, and that's that's what I, you know, because I, I, I came out in April for the interview. We did Zoom interviews, of course, beforehand. I came out in April, and you know, I'm like, you know, I I was like. Middle of the pandemic, I got a daughter, you know, I get out here and the Hubers, they own Belfort Furniture, which is this large 
furniture company in the DC area. And they are just the cool thing when I interview, because I got to interview, uh, I got to talk to the vineyard manager, Daniel Mumbauer, who is one of the best farmers I've ever worked with. Um, I, I talked to him, I said, do the Hubers ever tell you to grow as much fruit as possible? And he goes, no way. He goes, they want the best fruit. We, we thin, we thin everything back to at least meet it max like 3.2 tons per acre on our reds. I mean, uh, it's all cane prune, man. Our rows are, I mean, you know, and I, that's what I came here. If I, because it's one thing to have a beautiful winery and you know, all these things, but if the great, I don't want to deal with shitty grapes. So when I talked to him and I could see his, his vision and his ability to farm, I was like, okay, I can do this. I mean, everything else is, is, but I just didn't want to deal with 250 tons of crap, you know? So, right. um, so it's, it, it's, it's an awesome spot. I mean, uh, it's I just get to do my own thing here and after 28 years it's funny because most of my staff are uh in their early or mid-20s the late 20s and uh I think I was I had I think I think one of them was not even born after my first harvest so but um but a really talented group of people here uh it's it is a stunning piece of property I mean a thousand acres is a horse property which the dad George Huber is 88 still runs that uh, and then 300, 300 acres is, uh, 400 acres now is the winery. We have 85 planted of vine. And then there's another family member who runs a paintball company, which is like 250 acres on the property. So it's, uh, 250 acres of paintball. That sounds like it could be pretty fun actually. Oh yeah. 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 We're definitely, uh, as a group, we're going to go down there and let out a little frustration after harvest. <laughs> As, as the winemaker, that could be, you know, that could be. I might get shot a lot. <laughs> yeah, you might, might be the target. <laughs> and isn't so, it cool to talk to a winemaker, though, this year that's not talking about smoke tank? Yeah, well, what was, and he's still what was the worst thing about your harvest this year? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm sure whatever it is, it was better than that. Good this yeah. year. No, we did, have a, we did have a COVID outbreak in our vineyard crew right in the middle of harvest. Uh, uh, third of our members tested positive and right in the middle of harvest and, uh, I mean, fortunately, everybody lived. Uh, one guy was touch and go, but uh, yeah, you throw that in. We all got to get tested. And there's like 48 hours, and like we had to stop. And you're like, you know, <laughs> the worst case scenario, right? Everybody, you know, middle of harvest, and what the heck do you do? I mean, so uh, that was that was definitely uh, that was a rough week. But um, but yeah, we uh, we had a great harvest. The crazy thing here in Virginia is we just don't get the sugars. It's definitely more like Europe, and I just never got it until this year, is like we don't get above like 22 or 23 bricks. And so, because basically in July and August, where it's 90 or 95 degrees during the day and humid as hell, it gets down to like 70 or 75. So the vines don't have that ability to respire and recoup, like relax, right? Like in, in Northern California, where it's 90 during the day, 55 at night. And so basically they just, they, they crap out basically. And so that was the one thing when I was looking at chemistry from last year's wines, I'm like, what the hell these wine, these pHs are out of control. And so that was the vineyard manager and my assistant winemaker, Katrina, uh, were like, yeah, welcome to Virginia. You got to worry about your pHs. And so it's like for 27 years, I've always gone, okay, sugars are going here and then I get these flavors and here it's like, okay, I got the flavors. They're here but it's 21.8. Is that cool? Is that normal? And uh, so that, that was the biggest adjustment going, looking, not only flavor, the flavors are there, but convincing yourself it's okay to pick a 21.8 because 
we literally had like 10 days of like 82 degree weather and no humidity and the sugar didn't rise. <laughs> You're just like, okay. Probably done. It's just what it is. So, so uh, what do you do winemaking with? I mean, are you, are you signing aggressively or are you just kind of letting that be what it is? Uh, no, we can, we can chapelize here. So, oh, you can chapelize, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, so alcohol in a bag. Right. But, um, but it's still, it's, I mean, the wines are, I, I'm really psyched about it because um, I can make wine, I can pick the alcohol level, so to speak, right? I can go, I don't need it to be 15. It can be 13.8 or 14.1 or whatever. So are you so, using grape, con- grape concentrate? No, just sugar. Just sugar. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess yeah. sugar is the preferred way to yeah. do it. Yeah. Um, uh, great mouthfeel from from sugar, right? As opposed to concentrate. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, what varieties are now you working with now in Virginia? So, uh, the property here, which we got ninety-seven percent of our fruit off our vineyard this year, we got two hundred forty-four tons. Um, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, which is tremendous. Um, I think it's probably the best wine in my in my interview process the Sauvignon Blancs are outstanding um Chardonnay we got a lot you know we had 50 tons of Chardonnay we did actually did uh we're uh we're starting to make sparkling wine um we're, we're actually building a new winery on the property 32,000 square foot uh winery uh like 400 yards away from our current facility so that's going to be sparkling wine and uh white wine only facility so the facility i'm in now will be all reds so again another commitment to doing things at a high level didn't have to do that but really just wanted to um to focus on making the best whites and sparkling wine over there so this year we we picked uh, a little bit of uh, chardonnay for blanc de blanc in the future which once that facility gets done in the spring uh that'll be um over there um um, and then, uh, sorry, so Chardonnay, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, we have uh, Viognier, which Viognier is a state uh, crepe of uh, Virginia. Sorry, my dog is shredding every... It's a winemaker's podcast tradition <laughs> that somebody's dog <laughs> like, is literally. a <laughs> Crazy. Anyway, um, uh, Rhone, the Viognier is, a, Viognier is a state grape of Virginia, and Cap Franc is a state, is a red grape of Virginia. So, uh, Viognier, we had... Uh, uh, and man, an awesome wine. Uh, Viognier, we have one block, block eyes, Viognier, Marsan, Roussan, and a little bit of Grache Blanc. Wow. And we pick, we pick that together and uh, skin contact. Uh, there we go. There you go. Oh, the Marsan um, right here. There you go. Um, skin contact that for like five days at 50 degrees. And then, and it's, it's got crazy layers. I mean, the pH is like 375, which is wow. fine. I'm super excited about that one. Um, Cap Franc does very well. Cap Franc ripens better than Cab Sauve. Um, so Cab Franc really psyched on the Merlots. I mean, we the freaking Merlot we had this year is just, I mean, these layers, it's kind of like Carneros Merlot. Merlot. Um, the uh, Cab Sauve, high hopes for, we, uh, so basically the Bordeaux, we don't, we don't do Malbec. Uh, we have a little bit of Petit Verdot, which is, like this crazy, I had not worked with Petit Verdot, but I mean, it is these tiny little berries and tannic and we actually did a Sanye Rosé on that. So it's like Petit Verdot and steroids. Um, 
So uh, interesting thing is that there's no pyrazines out here. I mean, I never made a rosé from Bordeaux varietals because I was like, yeah, why would you do that? But uh, so especially in Napa, it wouldn't make it made no sense financially. But um, but man, the ro the ro I mean, we we got a nice the none of the merlots even at like 17 bricks were green at all. So uh, we have we hired or Lucy Morton, if you know her, uh, she's. Uh, L-U-C-I-E. She's considered the world's best amplographer uh, in the world. Uh, she basically was responsible for bringing Northern California back in the 90s uh, from Phylloxera. So she's a consultant here. Uh, super cool woman. I mean, she's actually from Virginia. She's trained in Bordeaux. She's in her 60s probably, but this old hippie. And she's super cool. And got, I've learned so much from her understanding the soils and how these these great bridles react um and uh, just if you ever get a chance to meet her or look her up she's she is a she's a wealth of knowledge so she basically decided all of the rootstocks and uh clones out here for everything from the get-go um we've got a little bit of nebbiolo which i have right here which uh is kind of interesting. I think it actually weirdly Italian varietals might do well out here because they have high acid and low pHs, which um, which is a tricky. I mentioned it's tricky out here with the pHs wanting to rise right. three nine when it's twenty two bricks. So uh, pretty psyched about the Nebbiolo. Um, never worked with it before, but um, and no yeah. no uh, Uni Blanc. No Uni Blanc. Although we're uh, planning. Uh, uh, Vermentino uh, uh, this spring. Okay, so. I'm just thinking about the distilling because I'm trying to put together the Uni Blanc <laughs> and making brandy out of it. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. the last. That was the last job, Brian. No, I know, but I, I, I know. <laughs> I do miss distilling, though. Uh, yeah, it is. It is Virginia, where there's a probably more than one still in the neighborhood. <laughs> and and I love how you're talking about why would you make a rosé out of Bordeaux varietals as. Well, he's not doing it now. Bart was sipping on his small back rosé. <laughs> oh, were you? Okay, gotcha. Yeah, we're doing a lot of funny stuff out here this year. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's crazy. I mean, I was funny like, weird, you know, not funny. Napa and Sonoma, Napa and Sonoma for 21 years. Never once did we have a fire like that. What is it like three or four years in a row now? Yeah. Uh, 17, yeah. 18, 19, 20. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. You could go back a little earlier for the general area, you know, include Lake County. Um, right. Yeah. Lake County always seemed to be the ones that they were going to have it be up there or Humboldt County or whatever. But, and so what's the, what's the wine culture like in Virginia compared to Minnesota and what's the, what's the, you know, the, what goes on on the weekends and tastings and. Yeah, we, um, we have over 4,000 wine club members here. Um, just nice. insane. Uh, yeah. Um, we have a restaurant here too, so it's a little bit similar to Minnesota where people will come. And actually, the interesting thing is, and I think a lot of people are probably saying the same thing, uh, is that the, the COVID has actually forced us to be more efficient. And with the reservations, what we have out here, basically you'll have a 1230 reservation. You need to, leave, you need to be off the property by 2 o'clock. Those numbers may not be exactly right, but something like that. So then at 2 o'clock, you got to leave and more people come in instead of 1230 and you might be here to four taking up a chair. Right. And so, um, and we are on basically 1600 acres and the family owns a furniture company 
we just bought more furniture. So we can literally see 520 people. We have two tasting rooms here and we'll have a third one in the oh. spring. But the original tasting room, we can seat 520 people outside at one seating, socially the distance. 520 people. So uh, who knew furniture owning furniture company was like the best business to be in in the wine business? <laughs> oh people are buying furniture like crazy. It's it's unbelievable because no one's going on trips or buying furniture. So right, everybody's in, improving their backyards. They can't go anywhere. Yeah, right. Yeah. Totally. Well, in Virginia is like they make bomb sparkling wine, right? I remember it was a few years ago where like the number two sparkling wine in the United States was coming out of I think West Virginia. Oh really? West Virginia. Yeah. yeah, we were only like twenty minutes from West Virginia. Okay. Um, and so, so you're prim- you're just using, you'll be using Chardonnay, um, but not doing any Pinot. We have uh, four acres of Pinot Noir. Uh, yeah, it's, okay. It, d- it doesn't go well. <laughs> I had high hopes for it, south facing slope, but man, it just uh, it can't take rain, and it just. It, it's a it's a varietal not to plant in Virginia. Let's put it that way. How many how many days of rain did you get through the growing season this year? Uh, days. I mean, so roughly. We a, yeah. So we got um, we have an awesome weather station on our property. Let's put it this way: we got like a normal year for rain. I think it's like twenty eight or thirty inches, and I think we were like thirty five. But most of that was in July and August. We had these crazy wet smoking hot days but in september we got 1.2 inches of rain before the hurricane came through today we had like 1.2 inches of rain in october uh so uh you know in 2018 i can't remember which hurricane but what the hurricane one of those hurricanes came through right in the middle of september and dumped like 20 inches of rain oh, on this area which that just, was that was queued up to be like one of the all-time great Virginia harvest. It had been actually yeah. a fairly dry summer. I remember this happening, and and then all of a sudden this hurricane rolled through, yep. and and swamped what was like going to be the best harvest. Yeah, it sounded like a disaster. Especially, in the, the, I think most of the whites have been picked, but the reds just got slaughtered. Yeah. So so I mean so the big challenges are a lot of vigor because everything just constantly wants to grow, um, and, and then um, you know rot. And and so powdery mildew, yeah, powdery, powdery mildew. So so what do what do you guys do? I mean, how how do you do it? Is it mechanical? Is it is it chemicals? Yeah. Is it hand going out with you know fans and fanning things off? No UV light, Bar, It's UV light. UV light, <laughs> hydrochloric clockscreen, whatever that is. Uh, <laughs> bleach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we yeah we suit up the Gregoire sprayer with that. No, uh, pretty vigorous uh, spray program. Uh, we it seems like the Chardonnay and like the powdery mildew comes in like right before harvest. So the good thing is you, you can spray. We spray, but also we take the hedger and go through because it really attacks like the new growth. We take the hedger and drive through and cut it off um we thin back heavily i mean we actually took uh our agro uh thermal sprayer i think i posted on instagram or one of those the other day it was super cool fired up the propane and just because we got like an inch of rain right before we're gonna pick the cabernet so daniel our vineyard manager was like oh let's just take the the blower basically it's blowing like you know 150 degree air, <laughs> the massive fan. It was pretty cool going through the Petit Verdot and Cab, and it was, it was, and that's that's the commitment here. 
and we're fortunate to have ownership that allows us to buy the tools to give us every bit of chance on, a, on an area that is it's marginal, right? I mean, it's, it brings right. a lot, right? And in Minnesota, at least those varietals were they were they were bred to survive a fair amount of rain. Uh, they could take a lot of rain for the most part, but um, and you didn't really have to spray that much. But here, it's it's shard and cab, right? It's you know, right. it, it, uh, so we're we're fortunate. We uh, they put in uh, just before I got here three uh, frost fans on the property, and this year. Uh, you know, I think they ran them 15 days because it, it was, it, it was like right in the middle of April, right before I was, I was interviewing them and it was literally like, it was colder here than it was in Minnesota. It was like 28. So basically, um, and we're on these heavy sloping, sloping properties so we can move the air around with those. But basically Charlottesville area, they got 80 to 100% loss, uh, from the frost in April. I mean, uh, so, uh, you know, not, we got we we got lucky, but also had the tools to help with it. But yeah, I've talked to some winemakers down in Charlottesville. They're like, you know, they're expecting 120 tons, and they got 12 or whatever. You know, Oof. yeah. So. I think your challenges are in front of you for um, working in Virginia. I mean, your 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 feet are still wet. I mean, you're still oh, yeah. standing there. Um, yeah, it'd be, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how things keep going for you. And the interesting thing is, like on the fermentation side of things. Like, like white stainless steel Savion Blanc at 58 degrees was stressed. We had like ideal, we have a, a FOSS that we use here, checking yans and everything. And like the yans were ideal. It said it's 58 degrees fermenting and they're stressed out, like kicking off H2S. I'm like, what the hell? At first I thought maybe it was by yeast choice. And then like every, the, the nutrient need here is high. Uh, and like my reds, like Cabernet and Merlot, which I'm used to fermenting at like 85 or 86, they get to like 82 and they start stressing out. So, uh, so it, yeah, it's big learning. That's because of the low sugars and the pHs. High pHs. I don't, I don't know. I don't, and I talked. It's not. It's not from our spray. Best I can tell, because I've talked to Katrina, who's worked in Maryland uh, and other their cellar masters. Said yeah, it's. And I talked to the former winemaker, and they're like, yeah, it's whatever i gotta figure out why why that happens but definitely it was like oh i gotta i gotta adjust my game plan here <laughs> so and who who was the uh winemaker before you uh a french gentleman named benoit pinot um oh good was, name yeah great yeah <laughs> uh, i think he grew up in the loire um he uh, is uh back in charlottesville running a winery pollock winery um which i think he had a connection with previously so but they were probably pretty stoked to get you on board, right? I mean, with all your experience coming from coming from California too. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's it. Yeah, it's, it's it is weird. Bart just left the room, but it is definitely like I'm here. I'm here. Oh, you're there. I mean, yeah. I feel like I'm the. I suddenly turned the corner. I'm the dad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> like most of the people in our taste room are thirty. You know, it's like I'm the oldest by a long shot. You know, and. Uh, yeah, I keep saying, well, 20 years ago. And I'm like, how, how has it been? I got to stop saying 20 years ago. <laughs> well, when I was your age, we didn't have electricity. You know, it's, it's, yeah. So, um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, we live on the property in this old chalet. It's And our daughter rides horses, and her horse boards basically in her backyard. It's a pretty pretty That's ideal pretty cool. setup. Yeah. yeah it's and, funny. And there's, a, and there's plenty of culture nearby, too. 
Like you, you know, yeah. once they start having concerts, there'll be places to go see concerts. And right. yeah. uh, it doesn't sound like it was quite as civilized in Minnesota. Sorry, folks in Minnesota. Southern Minnesota. Yeah, Minneapolis is awesome. Minneapolis. Yeah. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get I'm gonna get you're now I'm gonna get you just lost all your me. wine club members in Minnesota, right? They just, just pissed them all off, thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're I mean Middleburg, Virginia, which is uh, 15 minutes away, is basically cross between Carmel and St. Helena. Wow. Uh, it's it's like major uh, horse country area with fox hunting is the big deal around fox here. Hunting. It happens. People come from well, they did come from all over the world to participate in it. Uh, basically, uh, they go on private properties, these hunts, and they let they fight off. They don't kill the fox; they just chase it with all their beagles or bird dogs or whatever. Release the hounds! Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and so, and then basically, there's a big bourbon party afterwards or something like that. So it's like cosplay. I mean, they wear the outfits, they ride the horses, and they don't actually shoot the fox. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, because when I first moved here, I'm like, why do you, why do you, why do you kill the fox? You, you, no, no, we don't kill it. I mean, sometimes a dog does kill it, but the idea is just to chase the fox and run your horses and jump fences and then drink a bunch of bourbon. <laughs> I can just, just skip right running. to the end. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I just let me know when the, the, the horse ride is over. It was funny this morning. I, I got um, a new follower on my Instagram account, and it was someone who's a winemaker at Chateau Morissette. Um, which I wasn't familiar with. It's some. It's a winery in Virginia. Oh, oh I think Rand her name is. Uh, what's her name? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, totally spaced her name. I had not yeah, met her, but yeah. she follow. I followed her, and she follows me or something. And then yeah, I put like yeah. on Instagram, you know, letting people tune in tomorrow or whatever. So that's that's. Oh, I gave cool. you one right there. Okay. I gave you one, Brian. And Virgi Thanks. Virginia is, what, a, a top five wine producer in the United States? I think so. California. It's probably California, Virginia, uh, Oregon, Washington, New York. I think it's probably fifth. Yeah, yeah I, think, I mean, it, so there's there's a lot of wine in, in Virginia. And, you know, yeah. the historically, I mean, you know, Thomas Jefferson, Monticello, it's, yeah, it's right. where yeah. the American wine industry began, right? Yeah. I mean, we can, we can claim all we want in Sonoma and, and in California, but... Really, that's where the first vineyards were. Yeah, right. I mean, it's also just the American history in this area is is it's you know it's where the country started, right? And and this property, there's a road on the old gravel road on the property that dates back to the Civil War. Wow. And this this property was considered the North, um, where uh, slaves that got freed or got out of the, uh, the South, they would they came here and lived and sharecropped and were not slaves. It literally is a crow flies two miles from here, Oatlands, this old plantation, which is now a, like a garden or, you know, uh, that's that was the South where they had slaves. I mean, it literally like the, the lion ran right through this piece of this property. I mean, it's pretty, it's especially someone who grew up in Alabama and Tennessee, the deep South, my family are cotton farmers in Mississippi still now. It's a pretty amazing, we went to the Battle of Bull Run, which is where the Civil War started. I mean, like, not to get, get off the track of wine, but like freaking 6,000 people died in 18 hours in a, basically something the size of a football field or, you know, I mean. And not in a good way either. I mean, in like, oh, horrible, in horrible. In, in combat, yeah. 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 I mean, people idea. like brought chairs to watch. They, they thought it was going to be like some sport and they were, yeah, it was just horrible. I mean, yeah. yeah, there's spots where you see, uh, you know, you can see like trees that from those big round bullets that just, almost like would chop down some trees because they're just getting riddled. Yeah. 
Yeah. And my, my dad lives in North Carolina. He now calls it the War of Northern Aggression. <laughs> Sounds like a Southerner. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It took him it took him about twenty minutes to become a, a southerner when he moved. Yeah. Moved from oh, to the south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of history in Virginia. Actually, my cousin lives in Virginia. She lives right on that street that's got all the monuments where there's just one left that uh, everyone's after. Um, oh, in Charlottesville. Yeah. 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 She's she's been she's got a front row seat to all that's been going on over the past three months. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. People are moving out of DC like crazy. The real estate, you know, I've known a few realtors, and they're just—it's like Napa in like 2004. I mean, people are 30 offers on a house type stuff because they just want to get out of their small apartment in DC with all the craziness that's gone on. And I don't know. But. Yeah. Well, how did you get hooked up on Vermentino? Like what? Uh, it was the the. Uh, it was it was put in stone before I got here. Okay. That way, as far as planning, you mean? Yeah, because we we um, were talking to a guy who does long range models here in California. Maybe a year ago was it, guys? Leo, we talking, you know, Mike, you Leo? Know him, Leo McCluskey, you know from Enologics. Yeah, it sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. he you know he does um, tannin assays and stuff. Um, uh, but yeah, he's now working with weather and. Mm. Um, he was out. You tell the story, Brian. Well, just he, he thinks that that might be the next big California grape is Vermentino. He thinks we should be planting a lot of it because of mm. the, the rise of uh, the, the temperatures. So mm -hmm. climate wise, he just thinks that that will be a great grape for California. Hmm. Because <laughs> it has like high acid or what? I, I don't, I don't know because of its mm. ability to handle heat. heat. I assume. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. He also yeah, at the same conversation was saying that he thinks that, you know, Cabernet is dead and that, you know, well, it, that he was advocating a little more for Sonoma, that, that Napa, Cabernet is dead in Napa and that, you know, Sonoma should make a stand and say that Vermentino is going to be um, the next shard. The next the guy shard. Probably, has he ever sold a bottle of wine? Uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Sounds cool. You right, go yeah. do it first. Right. 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 <laughs> and actually, I've been trying to get a hold of as much Vermentino. I think I had a bottle last week that I posted on Instagram that was that was really good. Um, I mean, there, there's some of it around here, but yeah, I don't know about it taking over for uh, Chardonnay. That I mean, might... if you could sell it at the restaurant, Brian. Um. I, I could sell anything. If it's got acid, I can talk about it with some some um, um, a real positive attitude. <laughs> what's your, uh, Brian, what's your thought on pet nut? Um, I, I mean, I like anything alcohol related. So any anytime people are having, you know, alcohol as a beverage for me in general is, is fun. Mm -hmm. um, I don't take wine too seriously. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't drink Napa cabs. I like drinking fun stuff that's got acidity to it because in general i like things that are refreshing or things that are good with food mm. um i think pet nuts are kind of like the poor man champagne i think it's cool i think i like the quick turnaround process of yeah. it um you know just we like made, we, we made some this year that's why i was, was yeah what did you and what did you use so the funny thing is we have this uh four acres or so of pinot noir and our vineyard man it was planted in uh i think half of it in 16 the other half in 17 but our vineyard manager 
uh, in the spring when he was out spraying, noticed all suddenly some of the vines had very different leaves on them, much larger leaves, and it turned out to be Gamay. So huh. we had 600 vines out of our 4,000 vines or whatever. Uh, that's supposed to be all Pinot Noir, there was Gamay. And so we talked about doing a pet mat, and I was like, let's do Pinot Noir. And then I thought about doing Chardonnay, but then it's like, let's do Gamay because it wasn't even supposed to be planted here, and it just kind of fits that whole weirdness of pet mat, you know, and all that <laughs> stuff. So we bottled it, and I picked, I don't know if you know the yeast, uh, Bart Osmond House in yeast. Uh, I do. Yeah. Super slow fermenter kind of nervous uh or sam i'm not sure if you've worked with it before but um this old german yeast and it's like one of the first yeast i ever remember pitching at deloach they use it on their and stuff and it, it literally has like a two-week lag phase before it starts if you're not used to it you're, you're freaking out it takes like so i picked it for the pet gnats because i wanted because you're gonna have to bottle it during harvest right and i'm like i want something that's not gonna rapidly ferment and then we're like oh shit we missed the window and so so I did pet nat on on the gamay and then the PNOR and the gamay is it's super fun. I mean it's super cool. I mean it's it it's not something I would plant long term, but if we we're gonna do a pet nat, so we did like eighty cases of the PNOR pet nat and like hundred and twenty cases of the uh uh gamay pet nat and yeah, it, the gamay is really it, it all makes us smile and laugh because it's like it's, it wasn't even supposed to be here and now it's in a bottle. So 120 um, cases off of 600 vines is pretty good, actually. Gamay clusters are like, they're huge. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're huge. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, maybe next year you can use a, a little bit for your paquette um, program that you're going to be yeah, starting yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because yeah. that's, yeah. I mean, that's talk about quick turnaround. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, we're going to, we're going to, it takes about six weeks. So we bought it four weeks ago yesterday. And the goal is we have a label being made, but it's the goal is it's kind of like Beaujolais Nouveau, right? Gamay, Pet Nat, and Thanksgiving, right? And it, it, has a, it is a good wine to have with Thanksgiving. So. Right. Yeah, cool. I think our, with our experience with some friends that were that started making Pet Nat was that sometimes it would just get a little explodey. <laughs> I think that was yeah. the term they actually used, explodey. Was yeah, that, you that was the have... Valley Pet Nat? The, I remember Kieran Robinson saying oh, that, he, Robinson he, said that he was uh, he, he wasn't shipping any. Uh, it was only available in the tasting room, and that there was definitely some stains on the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. If and you then, bottle it too early, then yeah, you get these create these pressures that'll blow. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then, and then I think part of it also is that um, well, there's a learning curve on it. Like how clean is it? Right. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. because uh, it can get a little funky in the bottle if uh, there's too much. So, but you know, then you just call it a natural wine, and the defect and is okay. Raise the price. Put, right. put, a, put a nice uh, pink, pink, uh, colorful yeah. label on there. Looks like right. an ink stain or something. And I said, cool. I think I sent you a picture of it, uh, Bart uh, Quercetin. Yes. Yeah, you did. So uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, you know, you sent the picture, but you didn't ever give me an explanation. Well, I figured you had to look as Google. This thing called well, Google. I, <laughs> now quercetin is actually super it's super healthy for you and i it's seen it it's a uh a phenol and i've seen it in sangiovese uh, in a bottle uh, like like gamay i looked at gamay sangiovese these italian varietals or, or european varietals are very high in, in europe itself and 
there are quercets and tablets you can take to lower your cholesterol and all this stuff. And so basically I think because of this lot and it, it looks like, um, I guess we're, it looks like somebody, uh, in a bottle, it looks like it's a creamy white, uh, thing. I'll put it that way. <laughs> right. <laughs> Floating around in the bottom of your bottle. And so, yeah. um, and so, so I saw it in Luna in the Sangiovese and uh, Ashley Heisey, who was my boss at Farniente, I asked her and she's like, oh, it's quercetin. It's, it's an imbalance. It's normal, but it looks weird, you know? And so I think after six weeks of fermentation, it settled out, but it was literally like, it looked like uh, thick paper towels or, or, or just like small towels inside the tank. It was just this thick, gelatinous stuff. It was weird. Right. <laughs> but that's the only thing I didn't get it tested, but that's the only thing I could think that it was some, some sort of quercetin deal. I well, I mean, maybe you should have saved it and harvested it and made it into tablets. I know. One club add on. I mean, there there were some guys that, there were some guys at one point that were working on a way to extract seeds for the antioxidants out of grape seeds um, yep. down in South America. Um and you know, so stranger things have been have happened. Yeah. Um, right. so well, yeah, we and racked it. There might be a little quercetin in there. I'm going to, you know, <laughs> out its health benefits to the wine club. Well, because all you would need is like one of those things that you use for your, to clean your pool, right? You could just go into the tank and kind of scoop That's it what out. That's we were doing. We were like pouring it out with our hands, actually. It was, it was, it was bizarre. <laughs> I, thought, I thought somebody put a paper towel in the tank. Well, suddenly it was just it was all over the place. <laughs> like the, one of those things where, you know, you always have to look inside the tank before you close it up and fill it, right? That's like yeah. one of the number one rules yeah, in the right. cellar. Yeah. And um, yeah, and like someone left it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can remember times where someone would say, you'd go, did you check the tank? Yes. Mm -hmm. Did you check yeah. it with a flashlight? No. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. sure enough, you know, you go up to the top, it's got 20 gallons in the bottom, 100 yeah. gallons in the bottom, and you see a, a, a fitting or a yeah, brush, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. Someone's yeah. lunch bag. Like a little kitten in there. Yeah, <laughs> right. A couple mice. Damn cat got in again. <laughs> All right, Mike. Um, yep. Well, this has been great. So, can you give the uh, can you give the the website for the winery? Um, is it just Stone Gate Stone winery? Stone Tower Tower Stone Tower Stone Tower, right. Tower, Tower Winery. winery. Yes. In Loudoun County, is, Virginia. Loudoun County. And is that the same thing on Instagram? Uh, yes, it's Stone Tower Winery. Or you can follow Stone Tower Winery Weddings, too, if you like that. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes, that's another reason for having 500 people socially distanced. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Um, I'm looking at the uh, Instagram feed right now. You got some, whoever's taking your pictures knows what they're doing. Yeah, I think. We hired a 25-year-old gal who majored in social media. That's the move. Yep. yep. So, no, it is, it's a beautiful place. It's 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 hard to – I mean, one day we'll get you out here, barter any of you guys get out here. We got a, we have a, a guest house you can stay in and all this stuff. So, it's uh, – it's uh, if you're ever out this way in D.C., stop on by. Well, we're hoping that some, um, some podcast listeners will be uh, coming in to see you saying this yeah. – is is winemaker Mike Mike D here? Um, yep. 
because we right. want to we want the the extra tour of the of the property. Yeah, yeah. So. Drop the podcast. Say Mike Mike D's name. Right. There's, well, I'm Mike there's a bunch D of DC listeners. There's DC yeah. listeners. I have a bunch of club members in DC, so I'm there pretty often actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Time, Sam next time, time. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah. Usually it would be this time of year. I'd be getting ready to go. Right. Uh, yeah, right. But obviously yeah, I'm totally. doing that this year. Maybe yeah. you can do a maybe you can do a joint sixteen six hundred stone tower um, house party somewhere. I'm down. Five hundred five me and five hundred of my closest friends. There yep. you go. <laughs> Mike, what is the wild boar connection? So wild boar, so Hogback Mountain Road is the name of the road that we're on. And it's this mountain, it's a hill basically, but from a distance, I guess it looks like a hogback, a back of a hog, right? Okay. And so wild boar has been this uh, brand that, it's, a, it's another label that we own. Basically, it's anything that doesn't come off the property gets wild boar on it. Okay. And so now that our vineyard is 11, 12 years old, the earliest stuff was planned in 2009. We picked enough this year where basically anything off of 2020, it says wild boar will be from the estate, but it'll be stuff that wasn't good enough to make the main stone tower label. So basically we do like a wild boar Merlot and it comes from California or whatever, you know, just to, you know, to keep up with, you know, to have another brand that keeps up with the demand of 4,000 wine club members. And, uh, but the good thing is this year we're now to that point where, Basically, everything will come off the estate and just be the, the best, the most expensive stuff. We'll have the Stone Tower label and the Wild Boar will be, you know, a block, you know, a block that wasn't quite good enough to make the $70 red. It's a $35 red. Yeah. Yeah. What are your prices like? Like, what do you get for a bottle? Uh, $30 to $70 a bottle. Okay. So our, cheapest, our cheapest wines are about 30 in the two... We have a right bank blend and a left bank blend. There are sixty-five and seventy dollars a piece. Okay. Yeah. All right, guys. Mike, thank you. It's very nice meeting you. Yeah, you too, Brian. Sam. Yeah, thank you, and uh, yeah, hopefully get out there one day. My dad's trying to get me to North Carolina, um, and and I think last time I went there, we started in North Carolina and then drove through Virginia up to Ohio to see the rest of the family. Cool. It's a beautiful area. You're close to Blue Ridge, or no? Yeah, we can. I can see the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, from our porch. It's off. It's probably the uh, Appalachian Trail is like 30 minutes away. Let's put it that way. Wow. So, yeah. yeah, in the fall, especially with the, oh, with it's the trees, man, it's, yeah. that's one yeah. of the prettiest yeah. things I've ever seen. Yeah. Oh yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. All right, guys. All right. We'll. Uh, cool encourage you you know here's the thing is a lot of people drink you know they'll drink french wine or italian wine spanish wine and then from 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 the united states they always think about of course california oregon and washington but as we've talked about before on the podcast all 50 states are making wine including hawaii and alaska Mm, um not all of them are making great wines but um you know branch out and try something new i think it's cool i mean my dad's got wine in north carolina too and of course he sent me some raspberry wine and some other um stuff too but it's fun to check out some of the other states to see what they're doing what varietals are playing around within the styles that they come up with and in general you can get them at a better price than you would yeah, right. Because of the real estate prices and the, and, right. the yeah. and, and everything that we do here in California. So I encourage everyone to, you know, go on the website and pick out some models 
have them sent to the home and it's always it's always fun and it's cool to talk about too and it sounds i mean it sounds like you got a you got a good wine winemaker here so i'm pretty sure the wines are going to be good it's not like he's uh he's he didn't he didn't move there to to retire <laughs> no <laughs> yeah well, in years 20 years yeah <laughs> all <laughs> right the people in the winery are way younger than you then you then you can retire. Yeah, exactly yeah right yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, good luck to you. I hope your daughter enjoys living there. It sounds like she's uh, got a pretty good life. How many yep. more tanks? Of, uh, how many more ferments do you have going, Mike? We've got 18 more press loads of reds to do, I think. Wow. So, yeah, we literally, uh, we, we finished picking last Thursday. So we, we, we pick, like we pick on Thursday, we have a reefer truck we put in overnight at 30 degrees and then we bring it out the next morning. So, which is actually great for processing and planning and all that stuff. So, uh, so we just finished processing six days ago. So uh, our sorting, we have an optical sorter and all this stuff. But uh, so yeah, now it's, we kind of took this week to get us all back, like our seller career, but we hadn't had a day off in like six weeks. And so this week was like, okay, let's do the basics. And then next week we're going to hit it hard with drain and press. Yeah. Cool. Yep. All right. We'll, and have, last we'll have a good rest of your harvest. Yeah, you too, Bart. Um, sh shout out to Black Wine Guy. Thank you for the t-shirts. I don't know if you guys got to wear yours I, I on. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't worn mine yet. Okay. And, and Sam, how was um, uh, Vinyl Sunday? We missed you, Brian. You, yeah. you, were, you were definitely missed. It was, a, it was a blast, though. Had like 35, awesome. 40 people, uh, some music, some special guests. Trixie Garcia stopped by. Uh, MJ, MJ was there the whole time. MJ was great. Nice. Um, you know, the, the black wine guy, Phil, Phil was good. Um, we had the, the host, Jamie Kaler, which uh, apparently like Dan Bixby is his biggest fan. Um, so, so that worked really well. It was nice to have somebody kind of like fresh to the scene. Um, oh, we, that's a good dog. Here's the dog, by the way. That's the nice best, looking dog. dog. Virginia. There you um, go. I'm going to come see uh, the wines. All right. I'm, I'm here for the chocolate lab. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh no vinyl sunday was great we're gonna do it again i don't know exactly when but stay tuned it was uh the virtual vinyl sunday worked a lot better than i even could have anticipated you know we tried to get some videos in there clifford brown sent a video uh chuck you know flavor train motto sent in a video and I, I don't know if my zoom skills aren't quite there or if my zoom account isn't good enough or something but uh it was hard to do the share screen with videos and broadcast it out but it was just fun everybody talked a little bit and um I don't even know if we talked about wine for like seven minutes of the two hours. I think right, we talked about right. everything else. There was a lot of there was a lot of cannabis talk to be to be right. <laughs> to be frank. Is the Sonoma coma. That's right. All right, and this is our last opportunity to, to tell people uh, get out there and vote. Um, just dropped off mine at uh, Sonoma State University. They got a Dropbox over here, uh, right by my house. So I'm I'm going right now. Shout out to whoever uh, figured out how to send out stickers with these mail-in ballots and absentee ballots because frankly we all know the one thing that unites us uh, the reason we vote is for the sticker right? i mean everything else is like yeah voting great give me the sticker i'm stoked the stickers it's like it's like ash wednesday you know when you, everyone walks around with the thing on their forehead <laughs> yeah. gotta represent there you, there you go, go. So there, there's mike with his sticker on there his head <laughs> hold on hold on keep it there for a sec i gotta get that well, this is this is going on the Instagram account. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. If you want to check out yeah. some past episodes, hit up radiomisfits.com. 
You guys take care. I got to get to work and uh, review, subscribe, go, and go vote. Sell some wine. Review, subscribe, vote. Ten star yeah. reviews. We dig it. Good times. Mike, Thanks. thank you so much. Good take to meet care, you. Mike. Thanks,